Welcome to the 10th year of the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, the second of our two shows on Made in LA 2020 with Jill Mulady and Umar Rashid. Both artists are included in Made in LA 2020 A Vision, the Hammer Museum's biennial that has been installed, but is not yet on public view because of the pandemic, at the Hammer and the Huntington Library in San Marino. The exhibition was scheduled to open last year. Its opening date is dependent upon Los Angeles County guidance. As of the publishing of this episode, COVID rates in L.A. County are nearly double the national average. Online and off-site Made in L.A. projects by Larry Johnson and Khalil Joseph and Lehia Lewis are on view now. Late last year, a small number of critics and journalists received a preview of the exhibition. The Man Podcast is airing Made in L.A.-oriented episodes last week and this week in an effort to support the artists in the exhibition while we wait. First up this week, Jill Mulady. Her paintings, often of present-day scenes, are built from specific geographies and from editions pulled from art's history, including references to specific paintings, as well as to familiar metaphors and allegories. Milady was born in Uruguay, schooled in London, and lives in Los Angeles. She's had solo exhibitions at the Swiss Institute in New York and the Kunsthal Bern, and she was included in curator Ralph Rugoff's 2019 Venice Biennale. Jill Milady, after the break. This fall, Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Made in L.A. 2020, a version, in partnership with the Huntington Library, Art Museum, and Botanical Gardens. The fifth edition of the biennial, which highlights artists working throughout greater Los Angeles, features new installations, videos, films, sculptures, performances, and paintings, many commissioned specifically for Made in L.A. The exhibition will show the 30 artists at both institutions, two versions that make up the whole. Made in L.A. 2020, a version, on view this fall at the Hammer and the Huntington. Find details and sign up for updates at hammer.ucla.edu and at huntington.org. Join Getty President Jim Cuno as he talks with artists, writers, curators, and scholars on the Art and Ideas podcast. Learn about Black mid-century architect Paul R. Williams from the perspective of his granddaughter, Karen Hudson, and curator Laron Brooks. Hear the story of Japanese-American photographers in pre-World War II L.A. with curator Virginia Heckert. Explore the lives of Pliny the Elder and Younger, plans for rebuilding Beirut after the recent explosions, and an alternative history of surrealism found in Dora Maar's Lost Address book. Listen and subscribe on your favorite podcast app or visit getty.edu slash podcasts. And we're back. Jill Mulady, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you so much, Tyler. Let's start with the paintings on view in Los Angeles. The painting or paintings, the triptych, on view at the Hammer features MacArthur Park. Why was MacArthur Park a place you wanted to address? First, because uh, the Made in LA happens in Los Angeles. So I've something that really helps me to start to work is to appropriate the context of where the work is going to be exhibited. I live in Los Angeles. So it's sometimes when you are from the place, it's even harder because you don't have that distance. But MacArthur Park, it's a park that I like a lot, that I walk many times. I like when places have like contradictions on themselves and there's this contradiction of how intricate the architecture is. And I mean, it was designed to be this place in America to go for holidays and it was supposed to be the most bourgeois park in the times 
and it was like a holiday spot with these all these hotels around these beautiful buildings at the beginning of the century. But then the history of the neighborhood became super politically engaged with what happened with all the immigration from El Salvador, the gangs arriving after the civil wars in South America that happened during the Cold War, during the 70s. And I grew up in Buenos Aires. I was born in 1980, so it was just a little bit after that, and we were just affected by all this. I was born during the military dictatorship, And so we've always grown up with this idea of being resentful through America and then like arriving here. Of course, I was impacted to see all these gangs that they were just exclusion. They came, the history of like MS-13, for example, that that's what changed the history of MacArthur Park was that after the civil war in El Salvador, a lot of young El Salvadoreños came to Los Angeles to look for opportunities because there was their their own country was devastated and they were not able to go to school because America decided that they were not able to go to school if they didn't have like parents and they actually didn't have any parents so they went to the street but in the street there was this uh, Calle 18 gang which was the Mexican gang so they decided to make their own gang to just be able to be included in the society. And that's what really took over the neighborhood and took over MacArthur Park. And it really changed what it was built for because it was supposed to be this leisure place for the elite bourgeois class of America. So that kind of like historical struggle between the architecture and the social juxtaposition created a sort of decadent halo around that I was very interested to try to depict somehow. The central panel of the triptych shows a a tunnel that kind of visually leads us into the park and to the pond at the middle. Is that tunnel kind of a metaphor for that migrant history, that, that immigrant history you just described? That's a very dangerous tunnel. Actually, like that's what that's one of the most scary spots in Los Angeles because there was there's has there's a lot of more history than the gangs. There's also like uh, the song of the Red Hot Chili Peppers under the bridge. It's about that bridge, that tunnel, because that's where they used to deal heroin in the 90s. It's a place with a lot of layers of history, but it somehow became a place of like a wild jungle where everything could happen. So, yeah, there's a lot of history inside of the lake, too, of just objects and things being thrown there. And that's some sort of, like, in general, in my work, I get more sort of excited when I feel there's ghosts and history around that I will really appropriate into the work. So MacArthur Park is also very much, of course, a park. Your work has always bathed itself in art history. You have never been shy about making paintings that reference and add to and build upon other paintings. There's a whole lot of late 19th century French art history in which parks are sites, whether it's Surratt or Bernard and Vuillard. 
as you addressed MacArthur Park, is that an art history that you thought of or that interested you? Well, you're right to say I actually did my essay, uh, my master's in London at Chelsea about uh, Manet and the way how that would be the first modernist painter and the idea of modernism as like taking art history and bring it back into the contemporary experience. And I was also about the Baudelaire essay about the painter of the modern life, which is that just bring back something, but just dress it in a contemporary way. And the question about MacArthur Park, my presentation at the Huntington, because the Huntington eats a museum itself, I really went far there with the references and there's reference to like Cezanne and Fuseli, who's part of the collection. The Fuseli is in the gallery with your work, in fact. No, the Fuseli is a copy I did. Oh, is it? See, I did not. Yes, because the, the original one is at the European wing and the Huntington from Made in LA is at the American wing. So I just copied them. But it replaced, it's the, it's the three witches of, of Macbeth when they come and they announce his destiny. And I replaced one of the witches for myself just as a way of like a, like a semi-performative act just because it's about a play and Hamlet. That is one of my biggest influences. While we're at the Huntington, um, there are two, you mentioned Cezanne, there are two large vertical paintings that flank a doorway, entryway, that kind of address and update Cezanne. We see we see what look like familiar pine trees in the way they're um, not stems. What do you call them? Not stems, but trunks kind of bend in, in ways we're used to seeing in, in Cezanne's. And you've added fire. There's a lot of fire across Made in L.A. this year or these years. Why fire? It's very literal. The fire, uh, the forest in fire, really L.A. it's being every summer in fire. And uh, if you're here, the experience is very tense and, uh, because it's, it goes to really, it, it's very scary. All the houses are made with wood and uh, we have evacuations. We have friends, family that have to evacuate or that their houses are being burned and the parks are being burned. So it's it's really part of the reality. I often use fire as a just also more of a symbolic thing as things are burning and they're closer to the surface and in changing. But in this case, I, I wanted to depict like a burned trail. You mentioned you use fire a lot. A great example is a 2016 painting called The Devil is a Gentleman, which is kind of an address or updating of the famous Magritte at MoMA, the 1929, The False Mirror. It's straight from there. It's straight from there. Yeah, you can't miss it. It's staring right out at you to, to avoid to make the obvious punny joke. How do you decide that a painting is a painting you want to address as directly as you address, say, The False Mirror in, in that 2016 painting of yours? There's many things that they convey together. First is... I start very intuitively, maybe with a dream or like an emotion or, or like it, it starts more of like a, a feeling in the air of what's going on. And it's not personal. I really don't work with my personal experience in very rare cases I do. But it's more general of like the feeling around. And then I just open my eyes and I move around a lot. 
I, I'm not someone that stays at home or watches TV. I'm always like going out and seeing exhibitions, museums, movies, music, and also like、uh, social situations where I can really get in touch with things outside. And and I wait for something to just like hit and say, oh, this is it. But it's very intuitive. It's just like a a, a coup de foudre somehow. And I when I know, I know. Now with time. I know that when I'm doubtful, when I'm like yes or no, it's a no, because when it's yes, it's just yes. And of course, I saw that painting myself at the MoMA when I was in New York, and I was like, oh, I'm into this, but I feel it's not. That, but I feel like now it should be different. It should be reflecting hell and not the sky. And it was which year was it? 2016. So yeah, 2016. So that was. Yeah, it was really like the feeling I had at the moment of social experiences outside, and more of a we've been like very much into an apocalyptic death drive in the U.S., especially kind of conscious collective, unconscious collective. So it was more of like that kind of projection. One of the things you do a lot, a move of yours, is to work in diptych and triptych. To work in groups of twos or threes, why does that form interest you? It never came as a decision. It came later as a decision, but the first time was when I did these the three green men, which is these portraits of a.、Uh, it's the face it's inspired in a photograph of Artaud, Anton Artaud, when he was young. And then I did one, and then when I finished it, I was like, I have to paint this again somehow, and I painted again. And then I had two, and I was like, "Wait, I need a third one here." And then I did a third one, and it was something about the differences between them that would make the whole gesture more extreme. Like there, there's there was something very still that the repetition make it very like alive somehow or in movement because of these subtle differences. And that was the first somehow triptych. And then the second one was for the. Show at Gallery Noi that I did. It was this lake that I first I did one, and then I was like, oh, I have to continue the lake, and I did the second one, and I was like, I need to finish it, so I did the third one, and it became a triptych. But it was really not like a decision before. It, I just wanted to continue. It was kind of like when a writer starts a sentence and then they do a short story and they're like, oh, maybe I should continue this, and then it's just. Like there's more to unfold. After that,、uh, Ralph Rugoff asked me to participate in the Venice Biennial, and I was like, he was like, I really want these three paintings in Giardini. They will look good in Venice. And I was like, okay, so we have to do a presentation around this. And I was like, I'm gonna continue. So I did seven in total. And it became like a how you say a skeptic. You know that's that's interesting because there's so much awesome art history in your work that I was naturally expecting you to have an art historical reason for liking the form, but it's a more narrative, personally experienced reason. It allowed you to complete ideas. It's both things. I'm a fan of painting. I go to see museums because I like a lot. To look at paintings, and it does something that gives me extreme joy. I would say, it's just how it is. Some people like it, some people are sensitive to it, 
and there's something I, of conception. I feel like I consume the paintings when I see them. It's kind of like uh, as as my nourishment for my work. I have gone to museums with artists many times over the many years, and sometimes artists kind of quickly walk through galleries, find something in a painting they think they might be able to use later, but grab it really quickly and, and move fast past paintings. My sense is that when you go to museums, you sit down and stay a while. Not, not so much. I, not so much. I have to say, I, I walk through. I look. I, I take. I go very close. I always have a guard that comes and tells me, like, hey, step back. Sometimes I almost want to touch them. If there's no one looking at me, I maybe touch it. <laughs> But it's not something that I I see and I stare for hours. I'm very fast in that sense. I take a picture and I take pictures and I look at the pictures later. Because I don't want to get too... It, it, it always has to have some distance where I, I kind of got this, this thing that there's some mystery, the reason why. I am so into it. There's, there should be a mystery and that's why I have to go through it and see more about it by repeating it or by including it in, in my work. I'm like, why am I so driven to this? And that's why I start the new painting to go further. One of the things that really interests me about your paintings is how, while I can find the art historical references and references in them pretty quickly, say Francis Bacon in one of the paintings from the Venice Septich um, <laughs> that we were just talking about, or, or, you know, a tile floor that comes out of Matisse and an arrangement of flowers that comes out of Manet. When you riff on all of these people and passages in your paintings, they're still very much yours. I don't feel like you've appropriated them. I feel like you've borrowed them, turned them 95 degrees in one direction, and that they've somehow become different. Do you have little tricks or ways of that, that you think are important to you in making sure that you don't borrow too directly or cite or quote too directly? Well, first, I didn't do any, maybe the Matisse and Bacon that you saw, they're really not references that I did. They also, it's, there's something about our eye that it's, we have uh, images that come back, but I didn't do that straight reference. The Manet flowers, yes, I just take them like straight from it. <laughs> but the floor was really actually like, uh, I, I don't, I'm not sure which floor you mean. You used the one from the interior? Yeah, from interior 2019. Yeah, no, that was like a picture I took myself of, of a floor and then I repeated it. In the whole frieze was, the reference was Munch. And I wanted to kind of remain pure to that reference. So I didn't do much more than Munch. There's some Goya and the Manet, but that's it, I think. In the For me, one of the ways in which your paintings are thoroughly yours, even with the quotations, is both your, your, your palette and its tone. It's, you know, you're not painting 19th century Manet color. You're... No, no, I mean... So you ask me for what's the strategy, and uh, I would I would say that the strategy would be more like to externalize even the most everyday realities as visions, like casting them back as autonomous artworks. Really, like for me, that's and then I, when I use a reference, it's just like a little help to go further, a little bit, a step further into the history of painting. But it really comes from my own like everyday reality. 
and as I say, like it's the starting point come from my everyday reality. And then I use things just like, yeah, art history or portraits of friends or still lives that I see. I could just use anything. And I use painting art history just because it's the language in the way like how a contemporary musician of a contemporary pianist would maybe use Mozart to somehow understand what's the piano about because Mozart was such a, a virtuoso of how to understand that language. So it's more about like really trying to speak the language. One of the great collisions in your work is that the viewer, or at least the painting-informed viewer, immediately understands your language, right? I mean, we're talking about you know Munch and Manet and Matisse and 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 and, and these shorthands because we know those things. But in your paintings, you add figures and position them around the canvas in ways that suggest narrative, a story. And for me, at least, those stories are almost wholly outside art's history. They're, they're, they're completely of your own suggestion and invention. And I guess my, my, my question is, take a painting like Interior for 2019, which we were talking about a moment ago. Do you have a story you want the viewer, a narrative you want the viewer to see and understand there? Or are you suggesting possible narratives that the viewer can then run away with? I think the second, I'm more of the suggestion is more uh, because there is there's no I, I don't want to point things out down like very like this is the narrative because it's still painting and so it's not it's not really storytelling but there there's some implic it really has to go through the edges of narrative but not really get into the narrative itself so it's more like a suggestion of tapping into the narrative but really not getting inside of it that is an awesome answer and phrase that i am going to borrow and reuse <laughs> What, you know, one of the things that interests me about the way you build on paintings history is you aren't just using and remaking representational painting. You've done that with abstraction, too. So in an untitled painting from, well, so in an untitled painting from a year I can't find, you riff on a Clifford still painting, a big yellow horizontal still painting. What are the differences between, are there differences between when you riff on a representational painting and when you riff on and add things to abstraction? Well, yeah, it's true. You you found my abstract painting. I had like four years that I was doing abstract paintings and I was even painting with my left arm during that because it was so, as I always painted just like since I'm a child when I tried to paint abstract it was a challenge for me and I tried to do it with my right arm I just couldn't because I was so uptight so I started to paint it with my left hand that was when I finished art school because I uh, studied in London and there was a lot of painting is dead why are you painting and I was, in a way, I needed to go a little bit further, the narrative and all the things that after I came back to. Well, there's always like preferences. I've always been a big fan of Joan Mitchell. Um, yeah, there's a Joan Mitchell from the same period. That was like, there was this emotional quality of the work. And I've, it's true, I've, I've been very much into women painters many, many times. Like they become like 
somehow more like even there's fewer in art history i'm always interested in female painters and joan mitchell was for me the more the one i was most interested during the abex the the kind of stunning detail in your painted address of joan mitchell is that you included at the lower right her initials yes thank you <laughs> it's mine <laughs> Too. Yeah, I know that. That's what I was getting at. <laughs> and she was a she was a professional ice skater, and she had this physical approach that I've always also identified. I used to be uh, an athlete, and I've that's why sometimes people ask me, "Why are you painting in this such a big format?" For example, the paintings at the Huntington, not the Huntington at the Hammer. They're, it's like six meters by three meters, and I have to get into the sky scaffolding is just because I'm very physical too and um, it's while detaching myself from the from the from a scale that I can control and the scale starts to control me and I think Joan Mitchell had that physical approach too. The other thing about that Joan Mitchell recalling painting that is fascinating is the shape of a five-pointed star with which the painting is built and then the shape itself recurs throughout the painting why? <laughs> so I can believe I haven't thought about that in so long. But you mentioned that, and I just thought that I use that five-star kind, I would say, composition again in um, one of the paintings that it's at the show at Gladstone at the moment, Garden of the Blinds, that is this portrait of this androgynous character, and there's this fire and the smoke and these ruins on the back. I don't know if you see it. So I, you don't see it there, but the whole composition was made as a as a five-star point. I, you need to see it by a drawing. And that's something that it's, it's just like a very powerful composition. You know, it just goes somehow into another level of seeing the picture. And it's kind of your imposing organization on, in the case of John Mitchell, an artist whose work, kind of pointedly defied organization. It's one, one of the things you do a lot in your work is you kind of, I'm going to say this and immediately regret it, but fix art history. So there, there are lots of, you know, 17th and 18th century still lifes of food and dishes, for example. And, and you have a wink and a nod at such by showing us dishes in a dishwasher. You, you address and fix in a, in a, in a very entertaining way. That painting is beating the system from 2015. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but you know like I was at the National Gallery there is this room at the moment that is maybe it's always that exhibition but there's this little exhibition where it's like Fontaine Latour versus Manet still lives and it's just like the most beautiful show I've seen in my life I'm like after this I don't need anything else I mean that's somehow the complexion of painting itself I was blown out by the collection they have and that's like the paintings I enjoy the most looking at still lives and that I enjoy painting the most. I really, really feel very close to the medium itself when I do a still life. There's like, I don't know, no filter somehow. I want to finish by asking you about the surface of your paintings and the way your oil paint maintains a certain thinness and opacity. So I guess to start, how do you think about how you want your surfaces to look and how heavy or how light 
or how ethereal you want your paint to sit on on linen or canvas? I work often in straight raw linen that I prepare with like a transparent gesso. Sometimes with white gesso, so it's straight white, and I really use the oil in a very diluted way, like uh, watercolors, that, because it really it's the way how I can really use the most transparency out of it. So I really dilute them and I work. It looks very thin, I agree, because I use the raw canvas as a color itself, as a thing itself, or the white. I normally don't, if I paint on white, I don't add white. If I paint on raw linen, they look very opaque, kind of dark. And then if I add white, it's because it's really white. There's this, it looks like it's painted very fast. I do paint fast, but I use a lot of layers. So for me, it's the way how to really be able to layer the the medium in the best way to work very thin, almost like a watercolor. And I like the fluidity of it. And when I, I dilute it, I also like... I, I use the fluidity as if it was a watercolor. A, a great example of that, because it's a painting I mentioned a moment ago, is in Beating the System from 2015, the dishwasher painting. There's a pot in the lower right that kind of looks like a copper pot, where it looks like watercolor. It looks like mini layers. It looks like something that either could have been painted very quickly or painted laboriously. It, it has everything we're talking about in that pot. <laughs> well, it, it has... It's, it's also... It's seduction at the end of the day. Painting it's seduction and somehow to to give an impression that it's being made fast, uh, but it looks exactly how it should be. For me, it's more interesting than just spending like a month trying to make it look exactly how it is. It's more about the gesture of like done fast and it's done right. And that's something I learned from Manet and Sergeant Singer, who are the masters to do that. All of this we've been describing reminds me of the way Luke Toymans builds paintings. I'm not sure I can identify your having riffed on a single Toymans no, off the top of never. my head. But, <laughs> no, never. <laughs> but have you been interested in the way he puts paint on canvas? I honestly, the I've been more influenced by, this has nothing to do, it's more like an analogy, by Wolf and Tillmans in his photographs, the way how he he as these still lives, they've been more like interesting to me. I've never looked at uh, Luke Tillmans, to be honest. I've seen his paintings, but I was never really um, very much into it. I mean, I respect him totally as a painter. I think he's really, really gifted and interesting. It's just that it was not my my own path. Yeah, no, his paintings are totally different, but there is an opacity to his paint on the surface that struck a, struck a chord for me. Jill Mulady. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. It was great to have this conversation with you. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston has just opened the new Nancy and Rich Kinder Building for Modern and Contemporary Art, capping the completion of a decade-long project to complete the Susan and Fayez as Seraphim campus. Visit mfah.org slash getmodern. Welcome back. Next up, Umar Rashid, his paintings at the Hammer, 
will present the fictional Battle of Malibu, an exploration of the maritime exploits of the Tongva and Chumash peoples native to the Southern California coast. At the Huntington, Rashid critiques the Spanish dominion over indigenous Californians, including through the Mission and Presidio system and related colonial agricultural practices. Rashid has had solo exhibitions at the art museums at the University of Arizona and the University of Memphis, and at the Wadsworth Athenaeum in Hartford. Umar Rashid, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. <laughs> Thank you so much, Tyler. How are you? Good, good. Your work updates an old white American idea, the grand history and present referencing landscape painting. And you complicate it often by compressing all that history and more with present day address. So this is a long way of asking, what about going back to addressing and updating 19th century grand manor landscape painting, if you will, interests you? I was interested by, you know, that form of painting just because, which, which was actually kind of, I guess, a double answer, was the impetus for the reason why I do this work in the first place. It was, you know, all this, you know, the historical record has definitely been skewed, as it often is. But I wanted to include the people of color that somehow always get omitted from the uh, the historical record. Because, you know, at first it started, it was kind of like a soul-searching kind of a deal. And then I was like, wow, man, you know, okay. So you, if anybody, you know, if an alien came from Venus or Alpha Centauri, like they'll come here and they're like, wow, you know, these, these fair-skinned people have have really done great. Like, look at all their history. And, you know, because it's, you know, intentionally omitted everybody else of color, with the exception of ancient Egypt, ancient Mesoamerica, Babylon, so on and so forth, Asia, whatever. You know, I, I saw that as a, a malleable point. I saw, like, the 18th, 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries as a, the most malleable point in human history to kind of inject a counter narrative that actually runs parallel to the actual history without really shaking up things in a way where I'm not, you know, like a lot of people charge me with making this, oh, like, like I'm making like Django Unchained, the colonial version. Like, no, I'm not. Like, basically, I'm just, you know, I researched the history. And then, you know, now in the Internet age, there's so many other sources of history that you can find now that pretty much dispel all the myths of white superiority. And so I, I just chose to focus on that, again, being that malleable point, the age of sale, age of colonialism, and, you know, just decide to make a new narrative where the absent people are not absent. <laughs> Ameri American artists from the Harlem Renaissance on have done a bet much better job a much more focused job of revising American art history and its engagement with the idea of the American nation than art historians have, which is and should be a continuing embarrassment to the field of American art history. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I wholeheartedly agree. I mean, you know, even the poems, County Cullen and Langston Hughes and, and, you know, all those people from the Renaissance, yeah, they definitely paint a wider view. And But, you know, again... I'm never surprised. I'm never surprised, but they should be wholeheartedly ashamed. As somebody who works in the field, I, I tend to agree. So we've talked about revisionism a few times, and let, just to set up kind of how what we're going to talk about here, I, I'm going to mostly confine our conversation to the works on view at the Huntington and the Hammer for Made in L.A., because there's such a complete 
set. And there's so much of what you've raised in your work for a number of years now, I think, is within these two paintings, uh, within these two sets of paintings. So you are obviously really interested in not just history, but revising historical narratives and including people and events within those narratives that historians have not foregrounded as much as they might have. I, I have read that you uh, are a history nerd, that you, you like to read. So as we jump into these four paintings, could you give us an idea of what you, what you read, what your process of working toward getting ideas onto canvas were here? So this, the, the narrative that is present uh, on view at the, I mean, the narrative, the, the works that are uh, on view at the Huntington and the Hammer Museum, respectively, basically come from a narrative, a larger narrative that I've been working on for the past five years. And so this is kind of the culmination, a culmination, culmination of all the things that I've been working on for the past five years. Because I tend to study the history of the history, you know, like in all, all the records, like, you know, the stuff you can get from the Gutenberg project and the stuff you get from your local horribly racist bookstore. So I've taken all of these things into account and I've read the narratives. Uh, a lot of them are from history books because, you know, it gives me a broader view, you know, history books like, and I'm not going to name any names like McGraw Hill or, you know, one of those places. I mean, you know, they, a lot of textbook publishing, you know, uh, history of the United States. Actually, I have my bookshelf here, and I can tell you exactly the books that I have read. There's a, a history of the modern world, the sixth edition, which is always a, a go-to for me. A history of the modern world, the sixth edition. I think the last edition was uh, copyright in 1984. There is also the works of John Keegan, who writes about a history of warfare and John Keegan, I think is probably like one of my favorite, favorite writers in terms of explaining things in a very simplified way. It's not, it's not racialized. It is basically talking about how certain cultures evolve because of the weapons that they have created. And, you know, and so that's, you know, so you, so you have like your kind of unbiased, works uh Clausewitz of course on war and you know because of the time and then there's a book called Trappers and Mountain Men another uh <laughs> most of the whole collection of time life books and you know it, then design books you know talking about like folk art and of oh, Brinkley American History of Survey, Volume 1 to 1877 but you know since this is a global narrative I also take a lot of works from, you know, overseas, you know, depending on if I'm doing a site-specific narrative, there's also The Art of Mer Mesoamerica by Mary Ellen Miller, the revised edition. For the South African narrative that I did some years ago, uh, I tend to work with the um, volumes of Francois Le Vaillant, who was an amazing writer, kind of like the, uh, the South African Audubon or... Well, actually, he's more like kind of like a cross between Audubon and uh, Carl Bodmer. And so I use a lot of that work. And then, you know, there's the black writers, Yosef Ben Yokinen and Ivan Vertima and John Henry Clark, and, and, you know, who have inspired me for a very long time. Uh, their works, even though like sometimes people tend to reduce it as pseudoscience. 
or pseudo historical narration, you know, a lot of that stuff kind of comes out. So I just want to just shout out like all, all the people that who, who have, uh, and these are writers that people should read and then Audubon, you know, and Botner, <laughs> you know, you, you look at them. I mean, they weren't horrible, horrible, horrible people. Or, I mean, as so far, uh, <laughs> heraldry in America, the, the world book series, you know, so mostly like a lot of textbooks, but those books that I mentioned before really kind of cemented everything. Those are the earlier books. Now I have so many books in it, you know, it'll take up the vast majority of this interview to tell you all the books that I, that I listened to. But, you know, those are those, that's where, it, that's where it began. Oh, and Seeds of Chains, Seeds of Chains, Viola Margolis, published by Smithsonian. That book and John Keegan are like my Bible. Sometimes you have written short stories to go along with the work to kind of inform or guide the paintings along. Did you do that for these? Well, like I said, this is a part of a five-year narrative. So the overall history is written up. It is, it is written up. But this one, I just, you know, I just, this is kind of a one-off because I had already talked about, I did a show called That Ain't Gold, That's the Soul back uh, maybe about three years ago, which contained most of this information. And I subsequently completed a show at the University of Arizona Museum of Art entitled What is the Color When Black is Burned? So I've been, yeah, like I said, I've been working on this for about five years. So, you know, when I, you know, when I work on a narrative for such a long time, I can dissect that narrative. And, you know, the Battle of Malibu was not included. <laughs> yeah, let me, let me, let me jump in really quick. So the, these paintings address an event that you have created called the Battle of Malibu. What was or what is the Battle, <laughs> the Battle of Malibu? <laughs> the Battle of Malibu. <laughs> well, you know, so on one side, you know, because it was a, basically a, a show about the mission, missions in New Spain and the, the depredation and chaos that that had wrought among the native peoples of California. But then also there is the introduction of when the Spanish settled these remote garrisons, they also used a lot of the, a lot of the people who settled like cities like Los Angeles and, you know, Santa Barbara were of African or Afro-Latino descent. You know, because nobody, you know, if you think about the distance between Los Angeles to Chapultepec Castle and Mexico City, no one wanted to be here. This was, it was a punishment. And so they sent, with the exe- with the exemption of the, uh, with the exception, I should say, with the exception of the priest, they sent mostly disposable people here to build their settlements, build their forts, and then subsequently got the native, the, the indigenous people themselves to build their own prisons, which is not too far removed from, you know, what, what, what happens in the modern day. So, you know, like, as you, I mean, as, you know, most people may or may not know, the Battle of Malibu is basically, it's a fictional battle, a naval battle, naval coastal battle that takes place between, in my reimagined history or revisionist history or whatever term you would like to use, you know, I combined all of the tribes like the Tongva, the Gabrieleno, the Luiseno, the Tataviam, the Chumash off the coastal polities again, you know, together in one mighty grand army, so to speak. 
against the forces, the uh, colonial forces of New Spain, where they fight a naval battle using their boats, the Tomo, Tomo boats, which is a, a kind of like a, a very large a seafaring canoe. Against, so it's Tomo boats against Spanish galleons in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, which, you know, in, in actuality probably could never have happened. But I, you know, I just wanted to, well, I mean, they were, they were very sturdy boats. I mean, you can hunt a whale, you can kill a man. So I think that, you know, so the Battle of Malibu is that. So there's much like ancient warfare, there are a lot of people kind of, you know, on the on the cliff sides of Malibu or Humalibu, uh the the indigenous term for the city of Malibu. So there's uh, people on the cliff sides like enjoying a picnic, watching the naval battle come in. But to there's also like gods that were worshipped by these indigenous tribes, and and one of the bigger gods is Quaor who's like the, the sky father, you know, and he, it's a weird story, like, uh, there was another god, and he was killed, and Quaor kind of, like, took over, and, you know, at, in the pantheon, because I like to, what I like to do with all my works, is I like to kind of, not out religious practices, but I like to just talk about, like, how, you know, religious fervor tends to motivate people all you know despite lack of evidence of anything let me let me give a quick example from inside one of the paintings at the hammer you present kind of a two-dimensional view of the outside of a colonial era mission and then you've written on the front of the mission building he says in air quotes the words mission control both a reference that is understood and kind of contemporary American scientific exploration life, but also refers to what indeed the Spanish colonial fathers and armies were doing. Right. You know, so there's like, you know, antennas, there's an antenna that radiates out, you know, mission control, because that is really what happened. Like basically the mission set up, you know, they, they had a control over the people and made a lot of conversions. Uh, but there's also an indigenous woman named Toypurina who she went out and she was like one of the first like rebels. So I actually I used her her story. She was a Tongva woman or Luceno, but I believe yeah Tongva, but Luceno, Gabrielino, that all that's all the Spanish stuff that they put on the same pretty much the same tribe of people, like just Spanish names. It just you know Luceno or Gabrielino just met where your um who was uh, in charge of that particular mission in that particular district. So, yeah, Tukarina fought a war. Well, she was trying to foment a war against the Spanish colonial authority, and she was not, surprisingly, not murdered, but she was uh, captured and possibly tortured and then go her own way. And so I made a story where her fervor was, uh, you know, wasn't discovered, and she, you know, was able to make a, uh, well, I didn't use her exactly, but I you know, created a composite character that would foment this uh, radicalization and subsequent uh, revolt against the Spanish colonial authorities. The paintings at the Huntington might be considered as coming after all this. Well, that's actually simultaneous. Ah, so it's so so, the, so there is this fire and encounter on land simultaneous to the naval battle then? 
Right. So the naval battle is happening, of course, on the coast, and uh, the mission, the burning down of uh, the mission of San Gabriel Archangel is happening inland. So it was a coordinated attack. Well, I don't know. For, here's a little backstory from those paintings. So I have recreated the Lewis and Clark expedition. And so when, when the, uh, and the Fringlish Empire, so the Fringlish, my combination of France and England, based on the supposition that they weren't at war after the death of Oliver Cromwell, blah, 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 blah. blah. So there, you know, there's, there's a Lewis and Clark, what I call the Sydney and, uh, Mar- the Sydney and Saint Mark expedition across the, uh, to the Pacific. You know, so they get here. And the Russians are encroaching from their settlements in Alaska, you know, having been exhausted with their battles with the Tlingit. There's also the, and then there's, you know, the dispute with uh, the Klamath in, you know, Northern California, Oregon, and then all the, the, the tribes, the indigenous tribes in Spokane. So anyway, so the Russians actually are a lot more aggressive in their hunt for more land to acquire and then the spanish you know control everything up until oregon so that's kind of a disputed land so basically what happens is and then the fringlish are encroaching from the from the east and so then it becomes this kind of squeeze and i glean that from looking at the battles of the uh, war of the austrian secession and you know so i take you know like the story in itself is timeless. Like I take from different points and, you know, again, the malleability of history at certain points, you know, is easier to kind of shape, so to speak. So the Battle of Malibu, so that, you know, the Battle of Malibu and Stockholm Caliphus is, are both happening at the same time. However, in Stockholm Caliphus, that's more of a personal tale about how the, Afro-Latinos had this kind of Stockholm Syndrome, you know, at the death of the, the, the their enslavers and the death of their masters. And so he's cradling, so you see the figure cradling the Superman figure, whose name is Sancho, so hence the S, also attributed to Superman, this great, great man. And so he's cradling him and, you know, trying to comfort him when really... And then there's, you know, all the other people of color who are just like laughing at him and poking fun and happy that he's dead. (laughs) Which is actually happening in one of the paintings, I should say. Yeah. So they're like, you know, like, so there, but there's, you know, the thing is, there's one person. So it's called Stockholm Khalifas Khalifas being the kind of like a portmanteau, not a portmanteau, but actually just, you know, just a different way to call California. While referencing the Stockholm Syndrome. Yeah, and referencing, so Stockholm Caliphus is, yeah, but you know, you would not necessarily, only a person who is familiar with the history, uh, the, the brutal history of colonialism in California would be able to ascertain it upon uh, first glance. But yeah, but that's, that's what it is. <laughs> that's that. So one of the, one, one of the things that goes on here in, in these two paintings at the Huntington and, and, and a whole lot of your work, is that you are compressing time. As, as people I think have heard, you've taken real things from history and mashed them up with not real things from history, and you carry them forward not just in the canvas, but by referencing present-day events. So you mentioned a moment ago, in one of the two paintings at the Huntington, California's Mission San Gabriel Archangel is on fire. Well, Mission San Gabriel Archangel actually was on fire in July 2020. <laughs> 
and 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 burned down, not down, but but burned pretty significantly. It was a, a four alarm fire. I guess I'm I'm slightly prescient. <laughs> well, you know, like I know that California burns every every you know so many years, but you know, I didn't know that it was on fire. <laughs> ah, well, there's, I mean, in the 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 paintings, you know, a, a third or forty percent of the background of both of the paintings at the Huntington are on fire, and that's also a clear to me anyway reference to the way Southern California now burns every year in, in, in a climate change era. So this is all a long way of my asking, why is compressing history to 300 years of history and the present all together on one surface something that works for you? What, what, what about that mashup do you like? Well, you know, nothing really changes in human history. I mean, we have, we have jumps in technology and we have jumps in, well, yeah, we have jumps in technology because everything else pretty much stays the same, you know, and so, but the mashup is just to get people to realize like this time is no different than another time, you know, but you also, but then it, it creates room for a more optimistic view of a possible future. You know, everything that has happened is happening. You know, we can do whatever we want. You know, we can talk about it. We can sit around and argue about it. We can live in that misery. We can live in that trauma for as long as we like. However, it will more than likely repeat itself again. So my compression of time gets people like, you know, it's kind of like a, um, like a, a refresher course. Like a, it's like a, a joke or joke cola. Not that I want to shout them out on this podcast. I loved them in high school. <laughs> yeah, yeah, everybody did. Like it's liquid cocaine. Anyway, uh, so it's, uh, I think that uh, I think that what is important for me is people to know how truly time doesn't really change. Like technologies change, but look at you know social media for example. Like you know we have. You know, social media, you can be anywhere in the world in 24 hours, but you know, that it also, you know, increased sex tourism in the Dominican Republic in Thailand, you know, or Romania or, you know, some other place that has been blighted by whatever, uh, mismanagement of, you know, governmental things. And so, like, basically what I'm trying to say is like everything that you think has happened in the past, if you could just look at what's happened in the past and look at it objectively, you can see that it will happen again. And that's what I'm trying to tell people. I'm trying to tell people that duplicity, your duplicitousness, it knows no time limit. And I'm also one of those people who kind of doesn't believe in time, especially given the fact that we, I was 15 minutes late for our interview today. <laughs> <laughs> that's not bad for an artist. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, no, but I apologize. Like I, You know, as I get older, you know, I just turned 44 this year. And I'm just trying to be more, you know, because I get angry, you know, the only place that I can go to and I'm like, everything's going to be okay is Japan because the trains run all on, on time all the time. And if they're not going to run on time, they will send you this long apology. And it's like, we're so sorry that you're not going to be able to get to your destination. And I'm like, wow, that is dedication. So I don't know, there's certain places I think in the world that, you know, respect a certain thing. And so that kind of, you know, we all, we all have to change. We all have to evolve if, if that's really a thing. 
I don't think our minds have evolved. I think our bodies have adapted to the climate, but you know, the human mind, it doesn't, you know, I don't know. Like, I don't think our minds have evolved. I think we're still like stuck in, you know, caveman times, you know, the Neolithic, but you know, but our technology has surpassed this and, and, and it shows. It's like, I mean, it's not, you know, it's apparent to see like how all this happens. So basically all I really do. I'm just like, well, initially what Morashid, aka Frogs and Feathers, was supposed to be was the person that, you know, kind of sees time from the past, present, and possible future. And, you know, kind of creates a bit of a consensus. So you can see everything. Like, you know, there's a lot of references to Star Trek, because I really like Star Trek and Star Wars, and a lot, tons of references to Dune, Frank Herbert. <laughs> you know, there are lots of science fiction references, yes, and it's funny, I have looked through a lot of your art looking for kind of explicit Afrofuturism references, and the paintings generally stop short of that. <laughs> they, they, they generally stop just before an Afrofuturism reference might come in. Yeah, because I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be, like, you know, I don't want to create, I mean, I really want people to look at the history so they can see uh, what is happening now. Like, you know, like, I mean, although I was, like, you know, in the Trump, the whole Trump debacle, and I think it's over as of today, finally, or the final nails in the coffin officially but you know who knows what what, what it's going to be but you know i was just looking at that and i was like oh my god this guy just doesn't want to leave and i was like dude you're a reality star so since he was a reality star he's put it's basically common sense you know like a reality star is going to try to drag this out for the biggest ratings that they can get you know so everybody else is like supporting him and the people who are like you know wasting breath you know talking about why don't you just leave like stop talking about because that's exactly what they want you deny a plant the prerequisites for photosynthesis and the plant will die if you want something to die just stop giving it attention yeah your 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 inventions tend to be about the past rather than about the future and and because there's some as you noted, science fiction in the paintings, I kept looking for references to the future, but you basically take ideas from science fiction and apply them to the past, which is pretty cool. Well, actually, Tyler, you know what? You know, if you look at all these, like, especially the Dogon people of Mali, like, they were able to chart Sirius A and Sirius B without telescope. You know, they knew the movement of that planet, and they said they originally their people originated from this planet, which are these, like, kind of reptilian, water-born creatures called the Nomo. And then in the Congo, there's a, a group of people called the Chuezi, who they said have red eyes and magical properties. And, you know, and since magic is not necessarily indistinguishable from science, you know, maybe there could have been some. So, you know, I mean, I'm not saying I subscribe to the ancient aliens theory, like, we're just all, like, blah, blah, blah from somewhere. But, you know, hey... I actually don't unsubscribe to it, but then I think subscribing to an ancient alien theory discredits people of color from, you know, making things, you know, because a lot of Europeans, a lot of that focus is very European focused, and it, and it seeks to say, like, oh, yeah, there's no way that you could have built this until we got here, you know, and that's what continues that racism, that cultural racism that we feel in addition to the the regular ass racism that just just happens 
you know, so I was like, you know, so anyway, that's, that's that. As I want to do, I have a couple of, of art history questions. I want to start those with Basquiat. It's obvious that, that you are a close observer and studier of studier, is that a word? Of, <laughs> of, of Basquiat's work. And you add a lot to things we're familiar with in Basquiat. You don't just, you know, you, 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 your paintings are denser and more historically layered. So what in Basquiat do you find most interesting and do you try to advance? Well, Basquiat was amazing. Like, I remember, like, my, my father, who's also a painter, he, you know, I remember, like, he, there was a New York Times magazine, there was a black artist on the cover. And I was like, Dad, like, this guy, look at this guy. He was like, oh, yeah, it was Basquiat. Yeah, this is in 1987. Like, I remember that fondly. You know, and I was really taken aback by his work. I didn't rediscover it until later on in my life. But, you know, Basquiat, you know, was a real storyteller. You know, he managed to communicate so much information with a seemingly innocuous pain. You know, he was the one, Basquiat was the person who inspired me to explore, you know, well, take what I already known with history and, you know, take it like, you know, many steps further, you know, at, at that time I can imagine like, and this is just like, I mean, I don't know this for truth, but, you know, I think, you know, like being like one of the sole black artists of note at, you know, the time in which he was creating, I think it was like, he, he kind of had to hold back some things but, you know, when I, when I first saw the Basquiat show at the Mocha here in LA, I laughed all the way through it because it was such coded, he spoke in coded, like a code. People that weren't black or of color could appreciate it and white people could appreciate it, you know, for lack of a better word. I hate using colors, but you know, if we must, then, you know, it is what it is. But, um, because if you look at a lot of his works, you know, he referenced a lot of Greek history. He referenced a lot of, you know, history from the Caribbean, European history. And he referenced all these things, but, you know, it just was just like there and it didn't really have a narrative behind it. But, you know, I think he was just trying to prove to the white intelligentsia that he was just as smart. As everybody, and, you know, he wasn't just some street urchin that they could easily dismiss. You know, he was cultured. He was a learned, learned uh, individual. And so I took that and I was like, yeah, like instead of like making work of just, you know, like simply about trauma or, you know, slavery, like how about you just change the game? I, I think that's like a really key point in your work that you aren't only referencing Basquiat, but that you are really building on, on, on some of his moves. And one of the ways in which you do that is by making paintings and series of paintings across which narrative happens. Was Trenton Doyle Hancock in his way of building a kind of an oeuvre along narrative or Carrie James Marshall's Rhythm Master comics important to you? Carrie and Trenton, like, are Super, 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 super honored. I don't know how many times I said super. Anyway, they're, they're great inspirations, but 
Actually, no. I didn't discover Trenton Dell Hancock until I was well into my practice. And I didn't discover, I discovered, I didn't discover, uh, Carrie James Marshall until I was well into my practices is, is, I would say the only person that of relative the modern age that inspired me was, in fact, just Basquiat. And, but I think that Basquiat had the same effect on a lot of other people in the way that they chose to express themselves because it was like, you know, it's like, that sense of pride you get from like talking about Dr. Martin Luther King or like why a person, you know, older person is like, Hey, I marched for Dr. Luther King and that's like a badge of honor. You know, so like being born in the same time that Basquiat was alive and being able to see his works, you know, not too long after his death had, you know, created this thing in me. But then I also had all this historical information in my mind and then growing up in the theater and my father in addition to being a painter he's a playwright and a director so i grew up in the theater so like growing up in theater like so i managed to create a theatrical version complete with short stories and everything else but trenton doyle hancock you know like he is amazing and he inspires me all the time and i love his work and Carrie James Marshall, but they were not influential. Actually, I would say who was more influential, a long dead painter by the name of Hieronymus Bosch. <laughs> I, yeah, well, Bosch, Bosch gets mentioned in reference to your work all the time, and it's easy to see why. I mean, your work is often over the top, not as over the top as Bosch, because what is, but there is, there is, there is certainly darker, a line of darker. descent. And Darger, too, yeah. I get Darger, but, you know, it's funny, like, Darger's also from Chicago. He was also a janitor. I was janitor. Darger's from Chicago. We were both janitors. And we both make these crazy, like, things. Maybe it's something about cleaning toilets that make you, uh, like, make you crazy. I don't know. Like, maybe there's a little poo, a fecal, uh, a fecal psychotropic element, you know, that we, maybe we should explore. And, uh, <laughs> and another. You're, you're, you're launching a future art history dissertation right there. <laughs> Fecal psychotropics. I was like, wouldn't recommend it, but you know, hey, it could be, it could be what it is. But yeah, so Bosch, Darger, I get it. But you know, I also didn't dis- discover Darger until later on. But you never really know. I mean, and this is another thing that's very interesting. You never know where your influences come from subconsciously. So, like, maybe subconsciously I could have seen, like, a, a work by uh, Trenton. And I think we're around the same age. I think, you know, or not too far off. But Carrie James Marshall is actually, his wife is in the theater. And, and she, you know, my father's always known about the works of Carrie James Marshall. But, you know, he's never, like, so he, my father works with his wife. He was like, Carrie, I knew Carrie. I was like, you never thought to mention that at some point? I mean, not that I was going to yo, Carrie, man, let me get a, let me get a, uh, let me get a show here, man. Like, you know, just give me a little, a little bio, a little write up, you know, like, you know, I never ask, you know, so, but my father is a very, very interesting individual, you know, on his own, on his own. Yeah, but it was more like Bosch and then Jerry Cole, like, you know, I always go to the Jerry Cole and all these other people, uh, the Rubens. And, you know, Goya and all this stuff. So I, you know, so I've learned like the, the European canon that really, you know, I studied the European canon that influenced me. And then there's like the ledge artists who relatively unknown 
Turkish miniature artists who are relatively unknown. So I just combine all this history because, you know, in researching the history, I come across so many things. And, but Basquiat was the first person that I was able to see synthesize all of that information. And that's what makes, and I think people ignore this about Basquiat, the way that he was able to synthesize information to marriage, past, present, future. You know, like he, it's one, uh, in the 36th, the Darrell suite. I think there was, uh, you know, there was something about statues of Athena, maybe the Parthenon or something else mixed in with somebody like getting a hot dog. Or, you know, like he was able to see like so many dimensions, but he perished, you know, a little bit earlier, you know, well, not a little bit, he perished a lot earlier than he should have. But he was, he was definitely a pioneer and I think it will be important for, for now, you know, from now until infinity, but well, whatever infinity that I can possibly imagine. But, but then, you know, there's also another artist that I never knew of and, and then somebody, uh, was, uh, Robert Colescott. Oh, I can see that. Now that you mention it, I can totally see that. Also an address of history, also revising it, also with a wicked sense of humor. Like a really wicked sense of humor. Yeah, so I, you know, I never knew who Robert Colescott was. So I remember, like, you know, being angry at people, like, oh, that's Robert Colescott, and that's blah, 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 blah. And I was like, you know, like, hey, angel, that is, there's nothing new under the sun. But I really, really, honestly did not know that Robert Colescott existed because it wasn't part of the, you know, at the time when, you know, I had started this, you know, it wasn't like readily available you know that work i wasn't introduced to it until later on and i was like oh man robert colts oh you so you see like you know crossing the delaware that particular painting and i was like oh man this is hilarious so you know no ideas no idea under the sun is new and i don't purport to say like oh what i'm doing is 100 percent original but you know it's definitely not like 99 percent of the other shit that's happening right now Finally, I want to close by talking about snakes. The two paintings at the hammer both have snakes running through the middle of them, or snake-like, snake-referencing forms, and you've used snakes in your paintings for a long time. Snakes in American historical context goes back at least to the Civil War, when in the North, referring to snakes in poetry and visual culture was a reference to the treachery of the South. What about snakes attracted to you? Why do you like using them? I've always been fascinated by serpents, you know, as a Luciferian by trade. No, <laughs> as a worship, as a, as a card carry member of the Church of Satan, I no. Okay, so no. What, what thing about snakes? The snakes are entirely misunderstood. You know, actually, I feel a great degree of sadness for snakes because they don't have any arms. <laughs> Like, when I look at, like, creatures, like, it's like, oh, well, a bird doesn't really have any arms, it's, it can fly. You know, like, a deer doesn't have any hands, but it can run really fast. And it has horns, if it's a male. And, you know, but then you look at the snake, and it's just like, it's just a muscle. It's just literally a muscle that just pulses along the ground. So, really, what snakes represent for me is primordialism. And the Egyptians knew this very, knew this concept very well. Even though they developed a stream pantheon of gods and goddesses, they're primordial. If you look at any primordial religion anywhere on earth, it is always serpentine. 
like Apophis is always in my work. The rattlesnake is always prevalent in indigenous works. The python, Osebo, is prevalent in Ghanaian mythology. There's always a the same Jormugar, the Norwegian the Viking epic saga, the, the world serpent. Like serpents always represent this ancient age. And so I use snakes to infuse the primordial, you know, Adam, and then, of course, Adam and Eve, you know, the serpent, the tempting serpent. But I think we have a very, because they're so such ancient, you know, the reptilians are such ancient creatures, and the, the, the reptile, the snake, and it's just mysterious ways are so foreign to us as, you know, humanoid figures. I think that, you know, I just have like this, uh, you know, it, it led me into the primordial, you know, and then snakes in Kentucky, you know, like this, this snake bites you and you died and God didn't like, you, you know, like, you know, the, like snakes always come back into everything. Like they're like this kind of like, they're like a bad syndicated cartoon. They come back, in, you know, every, every year, you know, they're perennials. Perennials since the first millennium. <laughs> I love it. Umar Rashid, thanks so much. Thank you so much, Tyler. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.